0: It was the Trumpiest period of American history before Trump. And there's a lot we can and should learn from it. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can I get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get an back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means the synapses are is still firing. We just need to get a message through.
1: Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the
0: dignity of man. Trumpism did not suddenly spring out of nothing. As with all forms of life, there's no spontaneous generation. How much freedom, how much ability to understand and control where we are now and where we are going can there be if we are oblivious? If we have no understanding of how we got where we are. Just as new humans do not surprise us arriving by storks, we got here somehow And if we want to do anything about where we find ourselves, it's imperative that we learn how we got here and what can be done. The Trumpism of the 21st century has a long trajectory. Our returning guest today, widely acclaimed author Adam Hochschild's new book, is uh, about uh, what he calls the Trumpiest period of American history before Trump. His new book is titled American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. And as with the shock of Trumpism in our time, it's about one of the truly most shameful but little-known periods in U.S. history. Simultaneously with President Woodrow Wilson taking America to, war to make the world safe for democracy, <laughs> democracy was being brutally crushed here at home. There truly was a reign of terror across the land. And like the Trumpism of today, fear and hatred of the other attempted to legitimize itself as mere patriotic fervor. And along with democracy itself, a great many Americans suffered and many actually died as a result. The rule of law was swept aside in this period in a frenzied tsunami of war fever and blind rage. As with the Trumpists today, authoritarianism replaced our cherished Republican form of government. 1917 to 1921 was an ugly period. And just as today's Trumpist right insists that our kids never learn of that awful reality of racism, today's book banning right would prefer no one learn about what Hochschild wants us to learn in his new book, this foundation of how we got to Trumpism. Of course, erasure diminishes our power, whereas knowledge enables freedom. Adam Hochschild, thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: Well, good to be with you, Bert, as always.
0: Adam Hochschild is the author of 11 books, perhaps most famously King Leopold's Ghost about the little-known Belgian colonial brutality in the Congo, to end all wars, about the First World War, Spain in our hearts, the tragedy of the Spanish Civil War, 1936-39, bury the chains, about 18th century British effort to end the slave trade, and more recently, Rebel Cinderella, about Rose Pastor, an immigrant sweatshop worker from Russia who married an heir to a great American fortune and became one of the most charismatic radical leaders of her time. The new book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, is about, again, one of the most shameful and pivotal but little-known periods in U.S. history. Adam, please start by telling us about the title, American Midnight. How'd you come up with that?
1: Well, actually, the title, I have to give credit to my wife, Arlie, also a writer, who came up with it. And I think it's the right title, though, to describe this very dark period in American life. Uh The years we're talking about are April 1917, from the time that uh, the U.S. entered the First World War to March of 1921, uh, roughly four years, during which Woodrow Wilson was president. And I think those years saw the greatest assault on civil liberties in the United States since the aftermath of the Civil War when the South rolled back reconstruction. Um, there's there's been nothing quite like it. For example, during those four years, roughly a thousand Americans spent a year or more in prison Mm. and a much larger number, shorter periods of time, solely for things that they wrote or said. There was vigilante violence on a large scale, actively encouraged by the Justice Department. You know, there was press censorship in a way that we've never really seen in this country. Some 75 newspapers were to shut down. So I think that uh, deserves the title of uh, midnight in our country's life. And I hope uh, we won't go there again.
0: I certainly uh, hope not. But if we don't know about it, who knows? If it's erased, we're not going to get it. Before the re-election of Woodrow Wilson in 1916, the slogan, of course, was, he kept us out of war. And he won on that slogan. Anti-war Americans had seemed to be in the majority. But practically, as soon as he was back in office, he launched us into the war in Europe. People who thought, who had thought Wilson was a friend and ally suddenly found themselves under great threat of losing their liberty. Disorganized vigilantism is one thing, but please tell us about the role of top people in the Wilson administration in the wave of arrests, imprisonment, and even murder of political uh, dissenters. It wasn't uh, disorganized. There was some, it was connected with the uh, Wilson administration. Tell us about that, please.
1: Absolutely. Well, Wilson was a very paradoxical guy. Uh, On the one hand, part of him was genuinely idealistic. His great passion in life was the idea for the League of Nations, where the countries of the world would meet around a table to settle their differences instead of going to war. Um, In actual practice, I don't think his vision of a League of Nations with the United States playing a leading role in it would have been any better at uh, making the world less violent than the U.N. has been since 1945. But nonetheless, I think the idea came from a good place. And there was a kind of genuine idealism to it, which actually hastened his death, because he went on a speaking tour promoting the League of Nations when he was in very ill health. Uh, And, you know, going on a speaking tour in those days meant shouting because you know there were no public address systems and if you wanted to talk to 10,000 people in a stadium you had to shout at the top of your lungs uh 4 weeks into that tour he had the first of two almost fatal strokes um the second came a week later when he was back at the white house uh having canceled the tour and that shortened his life he he died uh, not too many years later at the same time, he presided over this terrible period, which essentially tried to silence dissent against American entry into the First World War. And, you know, in in 2016, Trump's followers chanted, lock her up, about Hillary Clinton. Well, Wilson did lock his opponents up, while uh, the most famous of them, for example, was Eugene Debs the perennial socialist candidate for president who'd won 6% of the popular vote in 1912 uh, when Wilson was running. Um, Wilson's Wilson administration sent Debs to jail with a 10-year sentence for questioning whether the U.S. should enter World War One, And Debs was still in prison uh, two years after the war ended in November 1920 when he received more than 900,000 votes for president.
0: And there was something in the book that I had certainly never heard of, the APL, the American Protective League, which was uh, kind of vigilantism, but it was apparently, I was shocked to read that it was chartered by the Department of Justice. Tell us about that, and, there, and, the, and the APL's appeal to men too old to go to Europe.
1: Yeah, Well, there's nobody who gets more militant about a war than a man who's slightly too old to fight, (laughs) but who's determined to see that the the young people don't uh, slack off on their duty and that they go to fight when they're expected to. So uh, around the time that the U.S. went to war in 1917, this organization formed the American Protective League. It was a Chicago advertising man who had the idea for it got heavy support from big business, Mm -hmm. and it was officially chartered by the Department of Justice. Before a year was over, they had 250,000 members, mostly, as you say, Bert, men slightly too old to fight, and they went around the country. They staged what they call slacker raids, where large numbers of these people would... You know, go through the downtown of a city, stopping every young man they saw and asking him to produce a draft card uh, or showing that he was registered for the draft or exempt from the draft. Any uh, who couldn't do that were uh, held in custody often roughed up a bit first sometimes for several days while their family members made desperate calls to overwhelm draft boards trying to get uh, the proper paperwork and so on and a very small percentage of them were found to be genuinely resisting the draft or not registered for the draft and were shipped off to the army um so these slacker raids happened throughout the country. Sometimes also a slacker was somebody who didn't buy a war bond. right? And vigilantes went after them and tarred and feathered them or beat them up. So there was a very nasty atmosphere in the air that was really encouraged by the administration.
0: Um, Absolutely amazing. And tar and feathering is no joke. It's hot tar. It's bad stuff. It's Oh, it's, I know it, it's it's really awful, and I, I I find it interesting. Fast forward to where we are today about manhood. You know, t- having to be a, a man and prove that it's fascinating that people like Senator Josh Hawley now are talking about restoring manhood, and uh, they're they're concerned about you know the rise of. Uh, feminists and you know questioning gender identities and things like that and it seems like the apl and others at that time were well teddy roosevelt and talk about manhood Uh, there's there's some echo there
1: absolutely uh You know, Teddy Roosevelt used to talk about race suicide because the people that he thought should be the leading race, you know, Anglo-Saxon white folks like himself, were not reproducing as rapidly as these hordes of immigrants, Uh uh, Jews and Poles and Italians from Eastern Europe and black people in the United States. So, yeah, men, I mean, (laughs) throughout human history, Men have been threatened by women's advances in different ways, and we're certainly seeing plenty of it today. And I think that's a major thing uh, driving groups like the Proud Boys yes. and other militias. They are the Proud Boys, after all, not, not the Proud People. Uh, and uh, the same thing was true in this period that I'm writing about, right. Um, remember in 1917, American women hadn't yet gotten the vote at the federal level, but it was pretty clearly in the cards. And in fact, in 1920, that amendment to the constitution went into effect. And a lot of men were threatened by this. They were further threatened by the fact that in the war economy, um, uh, with uh, some 4 million American men drafted in the army and many of them sent overseas, women had to replace them at certain traditionally male jobs, you know, driving streetcars, being firefighters, uh, doing kinds of in, various kinds of industrial jobs in factories. And employers often noticed that the women did these jobs better. So there was a
0: lot of sort of
1: threatened masculinity in the air, that I think helped drive this vigilante movement.
0: I do feel badly for those men who are so insecure about their masculinity. But it's been going on for a while, and it happened way back then, too. The echoes are just remarkable. And here was the early part of the 20th century, the century just prior to that. America had largely been one of agriculture, and small towns. Our entry into World War I, well, What effect did that have on the reordering of the economy, the gap between rich and poor, with, I guess there was quite the windfall for for big corporations, and and how did that uh, uh, affect the country?
1: Well, certainly there was a corporate windfall, um, and Wilson actually said some things to indicate that he knew this was coming. Uh, that uh, the country, to to fight this war effectively, it would give big business even greater control of the economy than they already have. Mm -hmm. So corporations made a killer. It was huge profiteering during the war, Because, and I think it happens very frequently in wartime because the government urgently needs tanks, guns, planes, destroyers, whatever it is, And, uh, you know, they don't go as carefully as they should over the itemization of the cost of producing these things. So, you know, a lot of money uh, went into corporate coffers during this period. And... I think people were, ordinary people were hurt as a result. It was particularly stressful after the war was over because the war stopped uh, November 1918. The following year, you had these 4 million men who were in the army being demobilized, flooding the job market, and the jobs weren't there because the factories were no longer producing the tanks and guns and planes and destroyers and so on. So there was a great deal of fighting between black and vi- white veterans over who was going to get uh, what jobs mm-hmm. were available. More people were killed in racial violence in 1919 than in any year since the uh, the uh, end of Reconstruction. Uh, the total was in the high hundreds. We don't know the exact figure because although there was racial rioting, which basically meant White riots all over the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the worst killings were in a place called Elaine, Arkansas, where both local vigilantes and federal troops uh, suppressed a black attempt to form a sharecroppers union. And the bodies of hundreds of their victims were simply, uh, you know, black people who'd been in, involved in this union were simply tossed in the Mississippi River and floated downstream. Mm-hmm. And there's no accurate count. So these were some of the stresses produced by the war and its aftermath.
0: And the divisions, uh, blaming—you gotta have somebody to blame. Before we get to that, Bert Cohen here. If you just tuned in, the show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today, returning guest, Adam Hochschild, brand new book, *American Midnight: The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracies* forgotten crisis that he calls it the Trumpiest period of American history before Trump. And there are some certainly s- some echoes, fear of the other. You know, it, we've seen that used again and again. And fear is a very important uh, and powerful, motivating force. And in this new century, in the you know, teens, there had been waves of immigrants to the U.S. And as you write, white rural small-town America was profoundly unsettled by change, change that seemed embodied in people who looked different or sounded different. I get the clear sense that dynamic is alive and well today. Comments on that, please.
1: Oh, I think that's always been true. You know, um, I think if you look at the history of this country, uh, uh you know, the, the people who are descended from immigrants who came earlier are always riled up about those who are descended yeah. from immigrants who came later. Uh-huh. And we see it right now where, you know, Trump and his followers, uh, stir up all kinds of nasty feelings towards people from Latin America who are coming over the Southern border. Mm-hmm. Well, a hundred years ago, uh, there was very little immigration from Latin America and the the population, the white population of the country was largely from northwestern Europe in or origin, from England, Germany, you know, basically Anglo Saxon. Mm-hmm. They were deeply upset over the waves of immigrants who began coming here starting around uh, eighteen eighty eight, eighteen ninety, who came from southern and eastern Europe. These are people who were overwhelmingly Jews, Poles, and Italians, and in the eyes of those folks already here, they were not quite yet white, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So there was tremendous agitation against them. It was further inflamed by uh, paranoia over the the thought that the Russian Revolution might spread to the United States. And so that swarthy person on a street corner speaking some incomprehensible Slavic language was not just a foreigner, but might be a communist spy of some sort. Uh, so tremendous agitation against that, um, against those immigrants. Uh, in the 1920 presidential race, the people who were the leading candidates up to the very last moment for both the Republican and Democratic nominations for president, were trying to outdo each other in promising mass deportations of troublemakers of all kinds. Uh, This impulse did not die away, and it resulted in the notorious Immigration Act of 1924, which essentially slammed the American door on newcomers for the next 40 years. That's what kept uh, Holocaust refugees out of the U.S.
0: Uh, So amazing. And one of the most defining features about Trumpism is, of course, the the whipped-up populist rage against immigrants. They feared an invasion. They actually termed it invasion, the whole thing about being obsessed with a wall, building a wall, which wouldn't do anything anyway. But it's interesting to read in your book about the effect of the whipped-up fear of pro-German spies. Um... How did the Espionage Act of 1917 become a weapon against immigrants who had done nothing wrong? Uh, was was the intent of the act stopping espionage or something else? It
1: doesn't really have much to do with espionage, actually. And in fact, in the uh, uh, nearly 2,000 uh, people prosecuted under the Espionage Act, there were less than a dozen of them who were actually accused of being German spies. Uh, the Espionage Act was pushed through Congress by uh, the Wilson administration weeks after the U.S. entered the war in 1917. Its intent was basically to criminalize dissent against the war. Uh, the act is, and is still in effect, by the way. It's the sort of thing that... Uh, it's the law that people like Edward Snowden have been uh, accused under. And actually, if uh, <clears throat> Trump gets into pro- problems over these documents, classified documents mm. he had at Mar-a-Lago, that's covered by the Espionage Act, uh, too, even though it's been amended in other ways. But this was the principal legal tool that the government used to suppress critics of the war, And to broadly suppress the left, because what happened Uh in this period is that it was a time of tremendously inflamed tension between business and labor. Uh Uh, Things were very violent. Dozens of workers killed in strikes uh, every year. In 1913, 1914, for example, more than 70 people had been killed in the course of the National Guard suppressing a Colorado miners' strike. Well, under the Espionage Act, striking workers could be accused of impeding the war effort. And so all sorts of things happened. For example, summer of 1917, uh, there was a strike of copper miners in Bisbee, Arizona. And uh, before dawn one morning, uh, uh, a a huge sheriff's posse swept through town, uh, roused 2,000 striking miners, Uh, out of their beds demanded at gunpoint that they go back to work more than a thousand of them who refused to go back to work were forced into a baseball stadium under the hot sun for a couple of hours then forced again at gunpoint and you can see pictures of all this onto a uh, train of railway freight cars that carried them 180 miles through the desert and they were put in an army stockade across the state border in New Mexico. So these were some of the Mm. ways in which the hysteria about going to war was used to suppress the labor movement.
0: And, you know, espionage is one thing. The U.S. was at war at the time. But why was it that the Socialist Party was considered dangerous? They, They obviously weren't spies. Uh, how, how was it, for example, also in addition to the Socialist Party, there was the IWW, somehow known as the Wobblies. Uh, did both the Socialist Party and the IWW, yeah, they were leftist, but spies? It, it, why and yeah. in what ways did the war against Germany become a war against the traditional domestic left?
1: Yeah. Well, the... You know, when a country goes to war, uh, the, the powers that be can accuse anybody they don't like of being uh, unpatriotic. The Socialist Party and the IWW, the IWW Industrial Workers of the World, mm. or commonly called the Wobblies, as you say, was the country's most militant labor union, the most colorful. They had the best music. They had the best posters. It was not the most influential, but it sort of seized the imagination of uh, uh, you know, many, many middle-class people as well as working-class people. Mm. And it was crushed in this period. There were a series of raids where hundreds and hundreds of Wobblies were arrested. They were put on trial in a couple of big mass trials, and the biggest one in Chicago uh, ran for, the trial ran for four months. Uh, the jury took an hour to find everybody guilty on all right. all counts, and more than 90 men were sentenced to a cumulative total of eight hundred and seven years in prison, so that organization was crushed, similarly, the Socialist Party, which was you know a relatively moderate party in the spectrum of the socialist movement around the world, deeply committed to the electoral process, uh, there had been more than a thousand socialists elected to state and local offices around Mm -hmm. the country. Mm -hmm. At one point, for example, 10 members of the lower house of the New York state legislature uh, were members of the party. They were mayors of cities as disparate as uh, Milwaukee, Pasadena, uh, Schenectady. Uh, But they were a threat uh, to the Wilson administration because the party had taken a very strong position Against the U.S. entering the war, when it did enter the war, uh, the socialists protested. And in the in municipal elections held in the fall of 1917, the U.S. is now six months into the the war in, mm-hmm. in, in Europe. The socialists made big gains. 14 of the country's largest cities they gained more than 20 percent of the vote, and more than 30 percent in several. in New York City, the biggest. And the administration was furious because they knew that if the party um, scored some successes in the next year's midterm congressional elections, they might hold, even with a relatively small number of seats in Congress, they might hold the balance of power because Wilson's Democrats held the House of Representatives by only a very tiny margin. So they moved to crush the Socialist Party. And Debs and many other leaders were sent to jail under the Espionage Act. Party conventions were were dispersed by the police. It was a really nasty time.
0: Uh, yeah, it, politics uh, has been called, uh, I had a college professor who called it uh, the economy of violence. And uh, I, mm-hmm. I do believe that's true. And you mentioned Debs very briefly. I suspect most people listening to this are familiar with Eugene Debs. But he was a a powerful uh, very chas- charismatic figure, and the government and big business apparently were very afraid of him. He was one of the great uh, leaders of the time who, uh, as many people know, did very well electorally while he was in jail. He'd been gotten a long sentence um, and one of the aspects of the the war on democracy at home while, while we're supposedly uh, making the world safe for democracy was surveillance. Since Wilson's time, presidents like Nixon and others have been really enamored of domestic spying. They really grooved on it. So, does such surveillance remain a part of American life today? Have we come to accept surveillance? What, what about that initiation of, of the surveillance state? well i I
1: think you can say the surveillance state really got its start in this period that uh, I've written about in American midnight um, One of the fascinating things to me about writing about this period, one of the enjoyable things of writing about it, is that you can find the reports from the people who did the surveillance they're all in the National Archives, the place that's now <laughs> back in the news again today. Uh, the Bureau of Investigation, basically mm-hmm. the FBI, it added federal to its name some years later, uh, <clears throat> had agents all over the place who were infiltrating uh, you know, radical and socialist and left leaning groups of all kinds. And one of them, who was particularly prolific in the number of reports that he wrote, and also a very skilled infiltrator, he got elected head of the Wobbly Branch in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh-huh. Is a is a character in in my book. Uh, I've got all his reports. Uh, we can see what he was telling his his uh, uh, masters at, at the bureau. Quite fascinating. Another place that was doing this kind of uh, surveillance on leftists and troublemakers of all kinds was military intelligence. The army started a military intelligence branch when the U.S. entered the war. Not directed. At Germany, they figured the British and France already, you know, had a huge intelligence operation going against the German military, but against dissidents at home. And within a year, it had more than a thousand people uh, working for it. And you can see its records uh, as well. And the guy who was the head of it, uh, an army officer, a lieutenant colonel at that time, named Ralph Van Diemen. yes is another of the characters in my book. Mm -hmm. I find him particularly fascinating because he got his start in the surveillance business by running the army intelligence operation during the Philippine War, that very brutal Mm -hmm. struggle that began in, in 1899, where Filipino independence advocates who did not want to see their islands become an American colony, were ruthlessly crushed. And Van Diemen sort of got his start there, and then nearly two decades later applied these same surveillance techniques here in the U.S.
0: And you talk about surveillance techniques. Most of us have heard of waterboarding. Yeah, it it got its... uh, uh, it, it got a start in uh, in the war against the Philippine independence movement and uh, continued uh, here to be applied here. This, and, and again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today, Adam Hochschild, new book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. I will admit I've been looking forward to getting this book uh, for for quite some time. What tell us this must have been fascinating, perhaps depressing research that you were doing here. What well, tell us about that well, process?
1: Well, I always enjoy doing the research. It's a lot easier to research a book than to write one, right? Uh, because you're gathering people's stories, and there's something always deeply interesting about them, mm. and. This, uh, especially, you're gathering different types of material about different kinds of people. For example, the undercover agent I mentioned, mm. Leo Wendell. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, almost no information about him except the reports he prepared for the Bureau of Investigation. But there are uh, there are hundreds of pages of these in the National Archives, and from them you can get something of a feeling of what this guy was like. Um, he was a meticulous note-taker, and he gloried in the fact that all these wobblies and other leftists in Pittsburgh trusted him. Yes, uh, They asked him to speak at their meetings. They asked him to lead demonstrations. Uh, I think for him, the thrill was that he was carrying out a successful deception. He was playing a role was an actor's through, um, so you know the the research for him was reading through his reports for other people. it was reading their letters and diaries and, and memoirs, for example, um, two of my characters were political activists who were jailed uh, under the espionage act. Uh, one is extremely well known, Emma Goldman, the anarchist firebrand. Mm-hmm. Uh, In the very next cell to Mm -hmm. her, uh, in the women's penitentiary in Jefferson City, Missouri, was Kate Richards O'Hare, a well-known Socialist Party orator, probably the Socialist Party's most popular woman speaker, uh, especially in the prairie states where she came Uh from. Uh And the two women, although coming from different political traditions who might have been political enemies on the outside, Uh became great friends in prison, and each uh, wrote her memories of the other. And uh, for somebody who likes to do books the way I do, where you tell the story through different characters, yes. when two of your characters know each other and are writing about each other, uh, it's, a, it, it's a writer's dream. Um, there's other kinds of research documentation available about the well-known political figures from this period, uh Woodrow Wilson, you know, of course was president and every move a president makes every day, sometimes every hour of every day, mm. uh there are written records uh from it and in Wilson's case it's collected in a 69 volume collection of his papers. Um, So abundant documentation there. And then in writing a book, the fun is putting all these things together and finding when your characters crossed paths.
0: And I I read a lot of books, a lot of history. Some of it is drier than others. One thing about your writing, and in this book as well, is it really engages the reader. People like to read about people, other people. And it, it, it pulls the reader in, and it's, it's fun stuff. And you know, it makes the, the history more alive and more real, and we can relate to it. And uh, I, I, I very much appreciate uh, that. And uh, again, the book is American Midnight. Uh, freedom of speech and freedom of the press is sort of like part of our American identity, or so we think. We, we insist that we treasure freedom of speech and freedom of the press. In the period you write about, of course, the only way the left could get its message out was through the mails. There were a few magazines with not particularly huge circulations, like The Masses, maybe the most famous, which depended on the mails. In that light, please tell us about President Wilson's postmaster general, Albert Burleson, interesting stuff about him. How did he affect the leftist press and freedom of the press in general?
1: Well, one of the things the Espionage Act did was to give to the Postmaster General the power to declare a newspaper or magazine or leaflet or book unmailable. It could not travel through the mail. Now for mainstream daily newspapers, this was not a problem because they were sold on street corners or delivered to people's houses. Okay. But for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion of all kinds, uh, <clears throat> the vast majority of the country's foreign language press, the mail was absolutely essential. It was the only way to reach people. You know, there was no internet, no radio, no, no TV. Uh, Burleson was the absolute worst possible person to put in such a position of of being a country's chief censor, essentially. He was a uh, deeply right-wing, reactionary, segregationist, former congressman from Texas. Uh, At the time he was born, his family owned 20 slaves, uh, and he really had it in for critical journalism of all kinds. Uh, in part because actually the the first newspaper he censored was a small radical uh, uh, weekly in Texas that had exposed the fact that on some land that he owned, he had kicked off the tenants and found that he could make more money leasing land to the state prison system which worked it with convicts you know in those striped uniforms and beat the ones who didn't work hard enough mm-hmm. so that was the first actually the first paper he in effect shut down uh, but he uh, uh, basically forced some 75 American newspapers and magazines to close during this period. Uh, And he banned hundreds of specific issues of others. And the curious thing was that even though the Espionage Act, with this censorship program within it, started with the excuse of the First World War, it continued for two and a half years after the war ended. And Burleson was still banning publications (laughs) up to the last minute, 1921, when the war was over. So a truly terrible period for press freedom in this country.
0: And the power that he had, you know, I I, I wonder what the legal definition of unmailable may have been. I suspect it was just what he liked or didn't like.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just call it censorship. You know, this was his, you know, and it was according to his whim, for example, The country's best magazine in this period was something called The Masses, a uh, monthly in sure. New York that uh, published John Reed, Walter mm-hmm. Lippmann, Sherwood Anderson, Edna St. Vincent Millay, all kinds of terrific writers. In many ways, it was sort of a precursor of The New Yorker, in a mixture of fiction and reportage, poetry, good graphics. Um, and... Uh, Burlson shut it down. He also put the editors. Uh, the government also put the editors on trial as well, because it had stuff he didn't like. Hmm. One of those items was a cartoon of the Liberty Bell crumbling. Oh, right,
0: right, absolutely amazing. And you know, freedom of the press, freedom of speech. The the attacks uh, began then. It's so ironic that. Uh, you know, it was during a a war to make the world safer, democracy, and what was happening here at home. And this is important stuff uh, for people to know about. And you mentioned the, the the extent of spying on American citizens was is is there was a lot more to it than I I had realized. Private conversations, uh, the t- 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 that. The the efforts that the that the uh, the vigilantes and the government went to tell us about the extent of this spying, some of the uh, uh, tricks of the trade that they used to uh, to entrap people, basically.
1: Well, the private conversations that you mentioned, there was a, a truly extraordinary instance where there were there was a cobbler's shop uh, in Covington, Kentucky, across mm-hmm. the river from Cincinnati. And uh, it was owned by a guy named Charles Schoberg, and he had a couple of friends. And these three men, all in their, their 50s or 60s, uh, didn't realize it. But one day, somebody came into Schoberg's shop and said, he two guys came in and said, we need to uh, check your electric meter. And uh. they went to fuss with the electric meter. But they were really planting a microphone. And from the microphone, wires led down into the basement of the building where detectives hired by a local vigilante group listened in. And for private conversations among themselves, Schoberg and his two friends were sentenced to federal prison because the conversations were judged uh, too pro-German. The men happened to be of German descent, They were talking in the spring of 1918 about how skillful the German generals were, which was a reasonable enough thing to be saying at that point, when the Germans had broken through the front line in Europe and almost reached Paris. And for this, they were put on trial, uh, arrested on July 4th, uh, I think by design, uh, put on trial and sent off to the federal penitentiary. So this was just one of many, many instances of people sent to prison for things that they
0: wrote or said, in this case, said in private. Yes, not even in public. And one can understand mm, anti-German sentiment. There was a lot of, I mean, renaming of German things and and avoiding speaking German. People could get in trouble for speaking German, even if they were German. How did anti-German sentiment blend seamlessly with anti-Semitism?
1: Well, uh, a couple of ways. One is that uh, many Jews were, in fact, Mm German-speaking. I heard about this as I was growing up from my father who was uh, 24 when the U S entered the war in 1917, Ah. uh, his, his family were German Jews. His father was an immigrant and they spoke German at home around the dining room table. But they knew, they knew that if they did this on the street, they risked being beaten up. Um, you know, several States passed laws against speaking German in public or on the telephone. Uh, Throughout the country, there were bonfires of German language books. Colleges,
0: mm-hmm.
1: universities, and high schools stopped teaching German. Uh, it was total uh, total paranoia. Um, there seems to be a reservoir of <laughs> paranoia in the United States that can get tapped in different ways at different times. The then something else happened at changed the nature of the paranoia somewhat. Uh, In the fall of 1917, November, came the Russian Revolution. The Bolsheviks seized power. And of course, the Germans had helped the Bolsheviks get from their Swiss exile Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, uh, Petrograd, knowing that if they took power, they would They were committed to taking Russia out of the war, which they did. So this sort of made a smooth link between the anti-German paranoia and then what became the paranoia that the Russian Revolution was going to spread to the United States. The anti-German stuff faded away quite quickly after the war ended, but the paranoia that the United States might fall victim to a communist revolution remained.
0: And it does seem that uh, I-, I was interested to read that uh, after the First World War, some US troops went to fight against the uh, Bolsheviks in the uh, Russian Civil War. Fascinating uh, beginnings of so many different things. Um, and today, there, you, know, you talk about banning books. Whew, boy, it's amazing. Who'd have thunk it? Today, there's a push from the right, the Trumpist right, again. To ban books, and they're having surprising success. Did, did 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 this going into libraries and things like that? Did this have a pre- a precedent in the American midnight period of which you write?
1: Oh, it certainly it certainly did. Uh, uh, libraries were were uh, told uh, what books they ought mm-hmm. to get rid of. Publishers were told what books they ought to not publish. Uh, yeah, this was all part of this censorship push very much a feature of that time
0: and here we are today talking about book banning and your book details many examples of paranoia at work many examples one fascinating tidbit is an incident that happened to Eugene O'Neill on a Cape Cod beach
1: <laughs> tell yeah. us about
0: that that's funny
1: O'Neill took his typewriter out to the beach. Uh, you know, he spent a lot of his time on Cape Cod, and was working on one of his plays. I don't know which one. Somebody saw the sun glinting off the metal of his typewriter and was convinced that he was sending signals to a German submarine. You know, that was looking with its periscope out at sea somewhere, and he was arrested. Uh, <laughs> you know, let go after after a matter of hours. But that kind of thing happened all the time. There was a German-born con- conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra oh, right. uh-huh. who was actually a Swiss citizen. But he was arrested, and police were looking through annotations he'd made on a score of Bach's St. Matthew Passion, you know, wondering you know, could these be some sort of coded messages that he was readying to send to Germany? He had a summer home on the the main coast, and he too was suspected of sending signals to German ships and submarines and so on so uh, and and a lot of uh, you know the the if not the majority, pretty close to it of the professional Uh, symphony orchestra players in the United States were of German or Austrian Mm, mm -hmm, descent. mm. And uh, hundreds of them, actually thousands of them, ended up in an internment camp for the duration of the war, even though there was no, uh, you know, clear evidence that they were involved in espionage of any kind.
0: Uh, Who was Leonard Wood? I get the sense that his appeal back then kind of remains present with us today. Your thoughts?
1: Well, uh, I mentioned that uh, there was a frenzy about deporting people from the United States. And uh, as the 1920 presidential nominating conventions uh, approached, the leading candidates for both the Democratic and Republican nominations were people who were campaigning on platforms of mass deportation. Leonard Wood was an army general, close friend of Theodore Roosevelt, a kind of fiery blood and thunder guy Uh, who had actually won the Congressional Medal of Honor by leading the capture of Geronimo, one of the last Indian resistors in the Indian Wars. Then he had fought in this brutal war in the Philippines. And in 1919, he was essentially head of the army in the Midwest, army garrisons in the Midwest. And he deployed his soldiers putting down a miners' strike here and bringing order back to a city torn by race riots there uh, and so on. He saw his path to the Republican nomination in 1920 as campaigning for what he called Americanism. He yeah. never quite specified exactly what that was. And deportations of everybody who wasn't American enough. Uh, He's had a little too little to say about anything else. And finally, at the very last minute, the party elders uh, put Warren Harding as the nominee.
0: Along with many villains, you say there were plenty of heroes as well who fought for justice and who defied bigotry. Some we may have heard of, but probably most we have not. Uh, I wonder if you could name names and what they did that makes them heroes. One of my favorites, of course, is fighting Bob La Follette, a U.S. Senator. Tell us about him and others of note who should be, you know, in this dark period, in this American midnight, there were some good guys.
1: Yeah. Well, let's not forget the good girls, too. Indeed, uh, People yes. like uh, Emma Goldman. Uh, Kate Richards O'Hare. Uh, Kate, Kate Richards O'Hare. Another person who figures in the book is Marie Equi. Oh, yes. Who was a feminist doctor in Portland, Oregon. Very outspoken fighter for justice. Uh, you know, took care of wobblies when they were injured in demonstrations and so on. Um, quite imaginative the police would arrest her whenever she started giving a speech on a street corner or something but she figured out yeah. one place they couldn't arrest her i love this was the top of a telephone pole so she borrowed a lineman's crampons climbed to the top of a telephone pole and orated against the war and only when she was finished did she come down and allow herself to be arrested um Another of my heroes uh, in the book is somebody named Lewis F. Post, who was inside the government. Uh, He had been the number three man in the Labor Department, former progressive journalist who worked in the Wilson administration its whole period. And in 1920, he suddenly became acting secretary of labor because the secretary of labor was on sick leave. The person who normally would have taken his place had just resigned to run for Congress. Post became acting Secretary of Labor, which was a crucial position because the Labor Department controlled the Immigration Bureau, which had to approve any deportations from the United States. And... Uh, attorney, the Attorney General, A. Mitchell Palmer, definitely one of the villains mm-hmm. of American Midnight,
0: yes, uh,
1: had arrested thousands of people in the Palmer Raids, as they were known, mm-hmm. and was holding uh, a great many of them in prison, preparing to deport them because they weren't American citizens. But these deportations to Palmer's frustration had to go through the Labor Department, post was a very skillful bureaucrat, uh, an experienced lawyer, and somebody who was deeply committed to civil liberties. And he managed to find problems with the arrest warrants. He invalidated them. He let thousands of people out of prison and literally saved thousands of people uh, from being deported from the United States. Um, An unusual combination of somebody who was a man of high principle uh, and an extremely skillful bureaucrat
0: and um, it, it it's rare, but it's good to know that there that there were these these people and you know t- people say today uh, every now and then you probably hear it Adam, well, I don't like the the far right or the far left. There is no left in America today. there was back then, but it was crushed today, less so now than it used to be. It used to be that when people hear the word socialism, they just stop thinking immediately. I wonder how might the U.S. be different today if a century ago the leadership of this country had not so ruthlessly gone after what was an actual left? What social policies that exist in other modern countries might be with us in America today?
1: Well, if we look around carefully, you know, other industrialized well-to-do countries like Canada and almost all of Western Europe have a much better social safety net than we do. They all have national health care systems that function well, and you don't have to be a wealthy industrialized country to have this. For example, Costa Rica has one-sixth the per capita income as the United States, but life expectancy there is two years longer. Why? Because they have a good national health care system, Uh, We don't, and it's shocking that we don't, that there are still Americans who don't have health insurance, and that those who do, you know, it's this cockamamie system where, you know, every serious medical procedure, and you must know about this, (laughs) what you're going through, you know, there are long discussions with doctors and bureaucrats and insurance, is insurance going to cover this part or that part or how much of it or what percentage, you know, you don't have to have that. And, you know, American socialists were talking about health insurance uh, more than 100 years ago. It was the Socialist Party in England, the Labour Party, that mm-hmm. installed their national health health service. Um, in Germany, it was parties trying to outflank the socialists to get something like this going before the socialists could do it and take credit for it. So I think if the party hadn't been crushed in this period, we might be more advanced
0: in those ways. I would think we probably would be. What do you hope, final question, what do you hope readers will take away from American Midnight?
1: A sense of vigilance. The democracy is something fragile. Mm. It can disappear, you know, like a flash overnight if there's a crisis. The crises in in the period I wrote about were the American entry into the First World War and then the Russian Revolution. I don't know. What the crisis down the road may be, but we have to watch out for it and be prepared to protect uh, the democracy we've got.
0: Boy, I hope people care about democracy. Fascinating new book. I've been looking forward to it. And it's it's been uh, worth the wait. American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. uh, Adam Hochschild is its author, and it's uh, HarperCollins. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. And, uh, boy, this is uh, a—it's not a spectator sport, keeping democracy alive, as you say.
1: That's right. Well said, Bert. Well, it was good being with you, and I'll see you at the time of the next book.
0: All right. Good. Thank you. Let the midnight special shine a light on me The midnight special Shine a river-loving light on me If you ever go to Memphis Boy, you better walk right Don't the police will arrest you He will carry you down Take you down to the station With the gun in his hand And the judge will tell you been a naughty man let the midnight special shine a light on me. Let the midnight spas show shine a live living light on me. <coughs> Yon comes Miss Mary. If you like that discussion, subscribe, don't miss a single show. Itunes, Spotify, Stitcher or at the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com.